at the book of Ephesians. If you remember from your maybe a previous study, Ephesians is is uh, real fond of the phrase "in Him." We are in Him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. And so this preposition "in" is really big. Chapters one through three in the book have to do with kind of the underpinnings, how the, the theology behind how we are in Christ and and how He is active in that. Then chapters four through six has to do with kind of boots on the ground, like okay, what do we what do we do with that? Our church has a, we go to church over in, in the Blackman area, and our church has a phrase that after every message, whoever's up there preaching me or one of our teaching pastors will we'll go into a period of time after the message that's called, so what? So we'll have a time of reflection after the message to write out personal thoughts around, well, so what? So chapter 4, verse 1, which is not where we're going to concentrate today, but just to look at that, Paul kind of answers the question that he poses in chapters 1 through 3, he lays groundwork in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, meaning from these first three chapters, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So Paul says, here's what all chapters 1 through 3 have been about, and he introduces what we're going to conclude today. So chapter 4, verse 1, he introduces, okay, this is application. This is so what? And we're going to do the conclusion of that section of the book. So let's turn, we're going to uh, kind of blow through verse 10 through the first part of 18 on chapter 6, the very end of the book. So he introduces this section by saying, this is how you live. This is how we're going to do this. And he says this word in verse 10, now, Paul is like a lot of Baptist preachers, of which I am one. He says, finally, he doesn't really mean it. He's going to talk about some other, he's going to talk about some other stuff, finally. Uh, but here's what he says. We're, we're going to kind of run through the, the precursor to where we're going to concentrate today. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So he says, all right, last big topic, to be, to be strong in the Lord and have the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So he's introducing a really serious subject. Let the devil's powerful. And he's saying, all right, finally, this is what we're going to talk about as we end this book about being in Christ. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he's like, all right, y'all, this is, this is where we're going to end this thing, and this is serious business, the schemes of the devil. This is finally, this is what I want you to walk away with with all these previous five and a half chapters. This is what I want you to leave Ephesians with, he says to the Ephesians church, or leave this text with. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Now, if you don't recognize the need in contemporary times to stand firm, I want you to go home and watch the news. <laughs> we have a need to stand firm in these days. It's not real different than before. It's just real different in what we get to see of it. And part of that's a blessing. Social media, TV, uh, all those uh, technology that we have, it's scary. The schemes of the devil are pretty wide open, if you haven't noticed. Uh, but the full armor, he said, so... Take up the whole armor to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, also as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of grace. 
or 16, in all circumstances, even when you're watching the news, even when you're reading social media, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the, the topper, the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So Paul says, while you're putting on all this armor, the whole time, do that in prayer. So let's go one more time, go over the flow, and then we're going to really hone in on these last few verses of the book. Chapters 1 through 3, the, under, the theological underpinnings of what it means to be in Christ. The underpinnings of that. Chapters 4 through 6, this is how you live it out. And then verses 10 through the end of the chapter, in where we're going to study today, he said, all right, let me give you a metaphor. By the way, Paul is chained to a Roman guard 24-7 when he wrote this book. So it's almost as if he's writing. Maybe he's chained, maybe he's right-handed, he's chained with his left arm or something. He's writing, he's looking how this guy's dressed, perhaps. He's looking at, okay, helmet and breastplate and belt and shoes, cleats on the bottom of his sandal. Like this guy's ready for warfare. He's a Roman soldier. And so Paul's using using uh, metaphorical language to say, okay, y'all, this is I'm, I'm looking I'm looking at a guy because I'm chained to him two feet away from me, and I'm writing what he has on or what I know he puts on when he goes to battle to fight to fight for the Roman Empire. And so we get to do the same thing. And so he goes to this list of things. Here's what he said. Uh, I want to read read to you what John Eldridge. You men, if you've not read some books from John Eldridge, he writes about how what it means to be a man walking in Christ in the world. Eldridge says this: Until we come to terms with war as the context of our days, we will not understand life. I would say our verses today: Until we come to understand that this is a war. And it's not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting people. But this is a war. You will not understand the need for all that armor or what it's even for. You just walk around with a bunch of armor and not know what it's for. We will misinterpret 90% of what is happening to us and around us. So Eldridge says, if we don't come to terms with the fact that we're in a war against powers and principalities, demonic forces, the devil himself, until we understand that, we're going to misinterpret What's going on? I'm going to read social media. I'm going to watch the news. I'm going to look at my news feed. I'm going to drive to work. I'm going to do those things. And I'm going to misinterpret what's really happening. If you read any of that, there's a lot of misinterpretation going on across a whole lot of different areas, church included. And so, so Paul is laying this out, perhaps look, certainly looking at a guard. And either the guard has that on or he's knowing what, what Roman soldiers wear. And he's saying, this is how we do this. So we're going to take Take our look. We're going to hone in now um, on the ver back on the back end of verse 18. That's where we'll start today. Martin Luther said this. He said, "Pure." Here's what pure theology is. Or actually, the theology of the cross. There was a theology of glory that said, "Hey, man, everything's going to be okay." And Luther said, "The theology of the cross is paying attention to the world we're living in." He says, "The theology of the cross is calling a thing what it actually is." That's what Paul is doing in these last verses of Ephesians. Like, guys, listen, we've got to call this thing what it actually is. It's a war against forces we can't even see. And so kind of on that, on that note, putting on that armor every day and recognize that armor every moment allows us to see things as they really are. 
It allows us to see through with that feeling that helmet on, feeling that breastplate against our trunk, feeling those sandals on our feet, the belt of, of, of righteousness around us to know that, okay, now I'm ready to face what I know this world is going to, to present to me. A friend of mine says, man, if God peeled back the veil for just a few seconds, I'm afraid it would probably kill us all to see what's happening. All that all around, there's a world that we do not see that is far more real than the world we do. So Paul is saying, if you're not armored up and ready to do it, uh, and when you put that armor on, it then gives you spiritual eyes to see what's really happening, what we're really facing. That the news and the news feed and the social media, those are symptoms. Those are symptoms of what we see. But what's really going on is behind the scenes. And putting on that armor is what allows us Allows us to see that. So Paul's, Paul, Paul's point here is we're going to see is tell the truth. Call things what they are. And Paul says, I'm going to give you an example. Putting on that armor lets you see what we are up against. The devil's scheme. So <clears throat> let's look at verses 18, the last part of verses 18 through 20. Paul says, to that end, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul starts out, he says, stay alert to that end, keep alert. The word alert there, it means to be sleepless. It means to keep awake. In other places, we hear the word says, wake, O sleeper. Peter says, be sober-minded, remain alert. And it's the same, the same word, actually, that Peter uses, but the same idea that, that Isaiah uses. He says, awaken, O sleeper. It's a military analogy, actually. It means keep watchful attention to spiritual matters. Keep watchful attention on that. Pay attention to the fact that there is another world and what that other world's doing. Be alert. Stay awake. It's, it's military duty. It's like a century on duty. To be, my dad was in a Korea after the conflict. He talked about being on guard. Part of his job was to watch the stockade. And he said, man, the night seemed like they lasted for days as he would do the midnight shift, so to speak. But he said, my job was to stay awake and to keep that place safe. And my other, other soldiers, like, it's like a century. It means to lie awake and to think of. Now, if you're like me, a young and never mind. If you're, let me say that. If you're like me, sleep is getting harder to come by. Part of that is age, uh, and part of that is lying awake and thinking about the world, lying awake and thinking about my life, lying awake and prayerfully asking for sleep uh, in the midst of what, what is going on. It's to lie awake and to think of. Think about when someone you love, uh, Josh's family is out of town, lying awake and thinking of them, praying for them, wanting their safety, wanting their good. Think of how many nights you may have spent lying awake and thinking of them. Paul said it's the same idea. Stay alert, lie awake emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and be mindful of, what, of what's going on, what we're facing. And he says do that with perseverance. The word perseverance just means to keep on with earnestness. Earnestly seek that, ardently pursue that. So in our staying awake, ardently pursue the doing of that. And he says to make supplication. It's a, it means to be uh, to have an entreaty. It means it's an earnest and a humble request. Let's put those things together. Paul says, to that end, stay awake all night, maybe literally, but certainly emotionally. Remain awake like you're, you're keeping vigil. With all perseverance, with earnest 
attention that is ongoing. Don't ever not be paying attention. And make supplication, make entreaties. Who does it say to do that for? It says to do it for the saints. The uh, uh, book, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee, she writes, it's so interesting to look at what happens at the end of a book, including this one, and then this book's Revelation, is to see how things turn out. What's the thrust of the book? The thrust of this book is God's in charge. As a friend of mine in seminary said, he goes, man, I can interpret Revelation. Uh, big war, God wins. <laughs> and so, you know, we know the end of the story. And so, it's like he, he uh, uh, to kill a mockingbird, Harper Lee ends it this way. She's talking about Atticus Finch, and she says this, he turned out the light, and he went into Jim's room. He would be there all night, and he would be there when Jim waked up in the morning. The thrust of the book, kill a mockingbird, Atticus Finch just stayed steady. He kept showing up. He kept advocating for those who had no voice. Stayed with it and stayed with it. That's the whole gist of the entire book, Kill a Mockingbird. The gist of this book is that God wins. And in the meantime, it's a war because when we're winning, it means we have opposition. We have opposition here. So keep alert, putting on the armor for the saints. Paul is very, very specific. Making supplication for the saints. Lucian. He lived about 120 to 100 or so A.D., so very close to when Jesus lived. He says this of the early Christians. Listen to this. It is incredible to see the fervor with which these people of that religion help each other. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, he's talking about Jesus, their first legislator has put into their heads the crazy notion that they are all brothers and sisters. Isn't that crazy? These people are crazy. They, they do stuff for one another. They love one another. They sacrifice for one another. And their first legislator, this Jesus guy, this character, this prophet, this rabbi, he's put into their eyes that they care that deeply for one another, that they're brothers and sisters, that they're kin to one another. That's nutty. Lucian is going, that's ridiculous. But we know it's not ridiculous. Paul says it's not ridiculous to make supplication for for all the saints, there's a beautiful, beautiful psalm, Psalm 16. Actually, my favorite psalm. Verse 3 says this, as for the saints, David speaking, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's the idea. We look around this auditorium, the auditorium we attend church, we look around the church universal, we go, oh, these are, these are the excellent ones. These are ones I worship with. These are ones that would take a bullet for me and I would for them. These are the excellent ones in whom is all my, these are the people I delight in. These are the people I love. These are the people that I do my, my life with. So to that end, Paul says, it, it is not the armor that makes the warrior. The armor is not the point. It's the character of the fighter. And so as we pray for one another, we think about the character of the one that I love, my brother, my sister, inside the armor that I'm praying for. <clears throat> and you know how we can do that really, really well? We can do that by knowing one another's stories. When you know someone's story and someone knows mine, reminds me of me and Todd. I know that dude's story from A to Z and he knows mine, A to Z. And it, when I pray for him, which is often acts every Sunday morning for sure, before he's here with you, when I pray for him, he prays for me. I pray for him knowing where he comes from. And he prays for me knowing where I come from. Not just where I come from, Georgia. 
but where I come from emotionally and relationally and mentally, what my story is. The more we know about one another, the more we can do what Paul is talking about here. The more I know your story, the more you know my story, the more we can pray for one another, not just in an informed manner. Like I did grow up in Georgia and I went to four high schools in four years in three different states. Therefore, I have a tendency when I go somewhere new, I have a tendency to try to fit in, lose my voice, don't tell the truth, don't stand up well, lose my faith, so to speak, drain out of me. It's called codependency in the psychological world, people pleasing. Paul called it fear of fear of man. I have a tendency toward that because I was the new kid all through high school. So part of my story is I was the new kid, scared, wanted to fit in, did whatever I had to do to fit in. So if people pray for me, they can know when I'm in pressure situations, wherever I am, they, they know that part of my story. They can pray for me well in, in light of my story. The Romans had a, a way, they had a flag system. And so when they wanted to get word to another platoon, maybe a mile or two or three away, they had a series of flags they would raise. And uh, where they could communicate with one another. You know what we call that? Texting. They were texting. So the Romans had it way before we did. One of the great blessings of my life in our church, we have an elder, an elder team at our, at our church. I'm, I'm on the elder team. And we have an ongoing thread that we pray for one another. I probably, get, I probably average three or four texts a day. Just There's six of us, these six men, five other men. We just text, this is happening, this is happening. My wife, my children, me, it, work whatever it may be, one of the blessings of my life. So when you pray for somebody, if you have their number, shoot them a text and say, I just don't, don't send a text. Now, you know, I, I'm a lifelong Baptist. That, that I'll pray for you. you. You know what that means a lot of times. But after we pray, just send the text. Just make the call, leave a voicemail. Pray and send it. That's what Paul's talking about, so to speak. He's saying, look, pray for one another, know one another, as Lucian said, be, cr be crazy enough to believe that you're brothers and sisters with other believers. Pray for one another in that way. Do, do, do the Roman texting. So we pray for boldness. Pray for boldness for one another. That's what Paul is going to be talking about next. So here's what boldness does. Boldness is connected to a thing called passion. And passion in, simply means bearing the burden of pain. People who are passionate will bear pain. And pain, passion produces two things, movement and clarity. When I feel passionate about something, I will make a move to do something with it. And real clear. I'm not talking about throwing a fit, as my, as my, as my granddaddy used to call it. I don't mean throwing a conniption when I say passion. I, I mean like when I'm really after something. And I want something to be different. And I've got feelings inside me like crazy. I'm very, very clear. And so are you. That's how humans are made. So we can have great clarity. It's what Paul is praying for. Now, here's the crazy thing. Like, who in the world would have ever thought that Paul would need to pray for boldness? <laughs> Poor little wallflower like he was. You know, like, it, it's, it's hard to believe this man would, would even need to be interested. But he's praying for boldness. Help me be bold. He's in prison. Help, help me to be bold in my proclamation. His boldness is what landed him in prison in the first place. And now he's praying for more. That's something this man is like, no, no, I, I don't want to go away because they arrested me. Remember, he, he, he's got Roman guards all around him. He's like, no, I want more boldness. I want to speak more boldly uh, for Christ. He, Paul says, I'm an ambassador in chains. I'm going to declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
So that's the to that end. And then we're going to talk about our true friend. By the way, these three uh, points rhyme. And it wasn't on purpose when I started. But the first two points rhymed. I thought 100% I'm going to make sure the third one does too. Just for the record. Uh, that's on purpose. And so to that end, Paul says, know what we're living with. Know who we're living with. Know what we're doing out here. Know behind the veil. There's a world going on we don't recognize openly until we were paying attention. And then he talks about a true friend. Verses 21 and 22. So that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. This man, Tychicus, he appears five times in the New Testament. I noticed babies being born with names like Matthew. I've never known a Tychicus outside this guy. And if we named our son Luke, we didn't go with Tychicus either. But uh, Tychicus, five times, he's in Acts 20. Uh, he's, he's among a group of people after the big riot in Ephesus, in this, in this city. He was there at that riot. Uh, 621, he's here. He's being trusted to deliver not only this letter, but the, the Colossian letter and the letter to Philemon. And on that note, uh, it's so Onesimus was a runaway slave. Any guesses to who Paul sent with, with Onesimus to advocate for him? This guy, Tychicus, trusted him. Go with him, talk to Philemon, advocate for him, because I know you will. Tychicus said, I got it. I got you. He did it. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, uh, he, Paul sent Tychicus to Ephesus to take care of his church while Timothy went to be with Paul before his death. And then in the book of Titus, uh, either Tychicus or Artemis uh, was sent to relieve Titus in Crete. And so every mention of Tychicus in the New Testament He's being called upon to do something of service and sacrifice, and there's absolutely no hesitation. Paul said, that's the guy. Tychicus will go and get things done. He calls him the beloved brother. That word, the, is very, very intentional. It's like, no, the, not just he's a really good guy. He's a really faithful guy. He's a really nice guy. No, he's the guy y'all know about. Remember Tychicus, the beloved brother? I'm sending him to you. Tych Tychicus is going to bring this letter to you that he may comfort your hearts. I want you to think about who do you have in your life? Who do you know that's an encourager? Now, I'm not talking about somebody to say, hey, man, turn that frown upside down. It's going to be fine. I don't mean that guy. I mean someone who's really and truly an encourager, someone who steps up in your life and says, this really is bad. I know this feels lousy. I know this is awful, but I also know I'm going to be with you in this. The word comfort, by the way, pay attention to the suffix of that word. It means fortification, comfort. It means, fortify. It means to strengthen. Comfort doesn't mean, now, 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 it's going to be okay. No, no, it's, it's not that bad. Comfort means, no, I'll be here with you in your pain. I will not leave. Back to Atticus Finch. When you wake up, I'll be right here. When you go to sleep, I'll be right here. When you're in trouble, I'll be right here. When you're rejoicing, I'll be right here. Uh, Romans 12, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. That's an encourager. I'll do those things with you. This is Tychicus. That he may comfort your heart. Now think about Tychicus. Tychicus has been with Paul in prison. And can you imagine the conversations? You know, Tychicus reads the letter that he's delivering to the Ephesians. And then he's going to, I don't think he's just going to close it up and go, okay, well, that's it. See ya. You know, Tychicus is this warm-hearted encourager. Can you imagine? They're going, well, tell me how Paul's doing. And I would imagine Tychicus would say something like, oh, Paul's fine, but you ought to be one of them Roman guards chained to that dude for eight hours. 
Think about that. He is preaching that they want to gnaw their arms off to get away from him. It's hilarious. Paul's just the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That's all he could talk about. Roman guards are like, oh, my God, get me away from this dude. He's driving me crazy. And there's a little bit of a hat tip at the very end of the book of Philippians. You notice, I think it's verse 20. Did I write that in my notes? Yeah, verse 22, Philippians 4. Paul says, those of Caesar's household send greetings to you. He's winking at them. Like, hey, guess what? Poor old me in prison right here. They're chaining those dudes to me for eight straight hours. And you know what I'm talking about? It ain't the Titans. I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about what I know to be true. And guess what? They're coming to Christ. And guess what else they're doing? They're going into the Caesar's household himself, and they're planting seeds too. Now I'm watering a fire out of it. Those dudes get chained to me, so they walk in there with tail between their legs. I just start talking. You imagine Tychicus telling those stories. Oh, there was this one guy, and you just hear it. Eating a meal together. He's read the letter to them. He's telling them, this is what's going on. It's encouraging. He's comforting them, telling those stories. There is another pandemic in the world, and it's called loneliness. And people like Tychicus help us in our loneliness. I'm going to give this, I'm unashamedly stealing this from a guy named Kirk Thompson. Kirk Thompson said, there are four characteristics of a securely attached relationship. They all start with this. Here they are. It's to be seen. We need to be seen by one another. Someone that knows you, as we said earlier, that knows your secrets, that knows your story. We need to see one another. And then to be soothed, to be comforted, to provide fortification through presence, and then to be safe. I'll tell you what safe is. The need for safety is the need to know someone is looking out for my welfare. Now, safety includes being confronted about things. A safe relationship is someone that will tell me the truth. I'll have a an amazing idea. I just think it's just the greatest thing to ever come down the pike. And someone that cares about me like Todd will go, that's probably the dumbest thing anyone's ever thought in the history of the universe. Don't do that. I'll go, no, I think it's probably a good idea. And because I have a safe relationship with your pastor, he goes, I'm telling you, don't do that. That's crazy. And I've done that for him. That's a safe relationship. So safety doesn't just mean the person I'm in the relationship with signs off on everything I think is a great idea. It's including feedback and confrontation. Safe relationships say we tell one another the truth. And we tell one another the truth in love, but we tell one another the truth. So seeing, soothed, safe, and then secure. Let me tell you what a secure relationship is. A secure relationship is a relationship in which I and you can struggle out loud without being rejected, without being abandoned, without being humiliated. I may not agree with it. I may say, hey, man, you need to dial it back a little bit. Or, but it means that when no matter what you bring to me, I am not going to do that to you. You may be in deep sin. You may have really messed up. You may be overwhelmed by something. Whatever the situation may be, what, however you struggle, and as you struggle, I'm not going to do that to you. You're not going to do that to me. That's, that's a secure relationship. Seen, soothed. Safe and secure, Kurt, Kurt Thompson. Kurt Thompson, is a, a, he, here's what he says, not me. He says, I'm a psychiatrist in Washington, D.C. I've got the most secure job in the world. <laughs> right? And so, so here's, I'm a, here's a quiz question for you. How, how do you get a friend like Tychicus? Anyone know the answer? Be one. 
be Tychicus, be someone in which people can be in a relationship in which you see them, you soothe them, you're safe, they're safe with you, and they're secure with you. You're looking out for their welfare, and you're not going to reject, abandon, or humiliate them. So the end of the book, Paul's book ending, I'm not going to read the text yet, Paul's book ending, the book, were where he began. You'll notice in Ephesians 1, 2, Pull back a minute. Verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get to verses 23 and 24, you're going to see very, very, very similar words. Paul starts the book with that. He's going to end it with that. It's called a benediction. He's going to end it with that. Twelve times in six chapters, he mentions the word grace. Because in him, we are in him because, give you another quiz, because I'm just a really great guy and I deserve it because I've done more good than bad because I'm a Georgia fan. Maybe that one. No, it's not that one for sure. No, because of his grace, I'm in him. No work of my own in him. So even the idea, the entire theme of the book in Christ, it's anchored in grace. Twelve times in six chapters. Matter of fact, the, uh, in the New Testament, uh, the word grace is mentioned 140 times in 27 books. So if you think about peace, remember the composition of this church. Remember what he talks about, these New Testament cyclical letters that he sends. Jewish-Gentile problems, those two did not like one another at all, and yet they were all thrown together in this thing called the church. And that's what Lucian's saying. Lucian's saying, this, they're crazy. Jewish, formerly Jewish ritualism worshipers and G pagan Gentiles, they go worship together and they love one another. And they're being convinced by this crackpot rabbi that they're actually related to one another. They, they love each other that deeply. And peace, peace is how that happens. And then grace, grace is from the Latin word gratia. It just means favor. And then the word gratia is derived from something that means free, ready, quick, and willing. So it's free favor. It's favor with no strings attached. That's grace. No strings attached. You just have my favor. I just have your favor. We have his favor with no strings attached to that. He gives it a, as a gift. So Paul is saying to them, I want you to, to, to ruminate on this free favor, on this grace uh, that you have been given. It loops back to where he even began the book. And he says, uh, for a love incorruptible just means sincerely. So we would be, as we kind of begin to wrap up this morning, we'd be remiss to not point out well, we're going to read the benediction in just a second to not point out the fact that this is a Christ-centric ending. With all he's telling us to do, all he's mentioning us to do, all he's saying, this is what it means, and let me point you to the point. And the point is, in Christ, that Jesus has made all of this possible. It would be crazy to put all this armor on and fight the cosmos without him we couldn't do it without him it wouldn't be necessary without him and so paul's pointing to the fact the central fact of all of this is him so let me let's i'm going to read it slowly you read it along with me silently i want more so there's a john MacArthur said benedictions don't need to be explained they need to be memorized and so i'm going to stop explaining Let's just memorize this together. I'm just going to read it a couple of times. Just let it 
follow along, if you'd like to close your eyes, let this be a benediction for us as we kind of move toward conclusion. Verse 23. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's just do it one more time. You can whisper these words to yourself as I read. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Paul's words to the Ephesian church and Paul's word to Powell's Chapel Church. It's the same. Peace, peace be to all of us together. Love from faith given by God, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that beautiful matchless word, grace, be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Henry David Thoreau, the writer, said this brilliant statement. He says, the question is not as much what you look at, but what you see when you look. It's not what you look at. It's not who you look at. What and who do you see when you look? Do you see someone you want to defeat? Do you see someone you have resentment with? Do you have someone you see someone you have a grudge with? Do you see someone that you would sacrifice for? What do you see when you're looking? And Paul's talking about that in these final verses of Ephesians. What is your filter? What filter are you looking through? So as we conclude, we'll conclude with what Paul presented to us today. I'm just going to ask you four questions, four, four statements. I just want you to ponder these. I'm going to pray, and Rob's going to come up and, and close this. So I just want to ask you these four things. What do you see? When you look at this world, what do you see? What's your filter that you're looking through? Secondly, how much do you know about the people, where the people are from, what the people's story that you're praying for? And maybe another question is, are you praying for them? Thirdly, what kind of friend are you being? Are you being a Tychicus friend? By the way, I've asked myself these same questions. What kind of friend am I, maybe? What kind of friend do I see in the mirror? And then lastly, what do I see when I consider God's grace poured out to me as I endeavor to live in peace, in love, and in faith, as the benediction says? What do you see when you look at the world at war? What do you see? Who do you see as you're praying for one another? What kind of friend am I? And what do I see when I consider God's grace poured out to me as I endeavor? Live in peace, love, and faith. So let me pray for us and we'll... Uh...